Hello, men. Welcome to the men's global live stream and to our third session uh, in our series, Identity Issues, where we are looking at Ephesians uh, for every man. We've been unpacking Paul's letter to the church uh, in Ephesus, and we've been learning who it is that we are in Christ and that our identity in him is giving our lives a new direction, a new trajectory, a new purpose. Uh, in this letter so far, Paul has been encouraging and explaining and correcting a little bit and teaching the church in Ephesus. And our hope is that we would experience those very same things as we read through this, as we go through this series together, as you read the book of Ephesians on your own and meditate on it and let God speak to you through his Holy Spirit. That's our, our hope. That's our hope for every man that walks through the book of Ephesians with us. Are you ready? Then let's get into it. Grab a Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 today. Now, I'm not sure about you, but a lot of times for me uh, in my faith, I can get overly focused on what it is that I'm supposed to do as a follower of Jesus. Now, at first glance, that might sound like, of course, Dusty, your faith in Jesus informs everything that you do. But it's, it's not just the do's and don'ts of the faith that I know are for my benefit. I'm not talking about spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, praying, listening to God's Holy Spirit in prayer, or spending time in community amongst God's men. But for a lot of my Christian life, I wrongly saw some of, of the greatest joys that are ours, some of the greatest opportunities as really being my biggest responsibilities or duties uh, or have-tos. You see, for a long time in my faith, I thought that reaching out to other people, that sharing my faith, that evangelism, right, as we call it inside the church, was something that I was supposed to or expected to do. That it was this thing that God wanted me to do for him, and he was sitting there with a clipboard in his hand like some kind of cosmic DMV trainer, watching my every move and, and making notes to himself about whether or not I was doing it right and how effective I was, waiting for me to make some kind of mistake. And I felt this enormous pressure that I was going to somehow do it wrong, that I was going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and I was going to blow it, and it was going to cost my friend their eternal salvation. Somehow I was going to offer the wrong answer to a question that he had, or I just wouldn't know the answer. And then eternity's in jeopardy. It was a lot of pressure. In this passage today, Paul has some incredible encouragements for us, some incredible corrections, the right lens that we're supposed to put on in the area specifically about sharing our faith. In just the first couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 3 today, I want you to think about, guys, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to making Jesus known in the spaces and places that God has put us, look at what Paul said about the places that God put him. Look at Ephesians chapter 3 in verse 2. It says, assuming, by the way, that you know, God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. Special responsibility. Look, he goes, jump down with me to verse 7, where he says, by God's grace and power, and mighty power, rather, I've been given the privilege the, the privilege of spreading this good news. And again in verse 8, he, God, graciously gave me the privilege 
of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. Guys, you see, for Paul, just like for you and me today, we have to recognize the simple and profound, beautiful truth that sharing the gospel is a privilege. It's, it's a privilege. Making Jesus known is a privilege. It's not a responsibility. It's not a chore. It's not some elevated intellectual argument that we're supposed to get into and back people into a corner so that they just submit and repent. Paul saw his life's work for what it really was, a glorified privilege, an honor. And moreover, guys, Paul was stoked that his job was to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the Gentiles, to those who were furthest away, to those who hadn't yet been included in the things of God. And guys, when we're taking the gospel to the people who have not ever heard it, or maybe the people who are opposed to it outright, our tactics have to look differently. We need to adjust the manner in which we share. Because like I said, we're not trying to overpower people with the truth or offer them a set of rules that they have to live up to before they enter into a relationship with Jesus. Because we don't desire to overpower people. We don't desire to win arguments. Guys, as God's men, we actually endeavor to lift the burdens, to lighten the burdens, to make easy the path for those who haven't heard the gospel yet. Paul shared this vision, which I think we would do well to live into nowadays. Acts chapter 15, verse 19, as the church is going out, as everyone is endeavoring to make Christ known, Paul says this about reaching those that are furthest away. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Not make it difficult. This is the core of the good news. Even when the gospel's being shared, both parties should experience a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Both parties, those sharing the gospel and those receiving it, are both experiencing a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. This is, this is what I mean by that. To the one who's sharing the good news, the easy yoke and the light burden is that the burden of proving the scripture is not on us. God's truth does not depend on our ability to articulate it. Our job is to show up. Our job is to be men who have studied God's word that we might offer answers, but recognize it's always the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that draws people to the Lord that draws people to himself. It's God's endeavor. My favorite evangelist in all the scripture is the blind man that Jesus healed. Jesus heals the blind man and the religious leaders are upset, shockingly. And they're trying to trap Jesus. And they're, they start examining and cross-examining this man, trying to get him to somehow discredit Jesus by calling him a sinner right? But the, by endeavoring to, to, to prove that Christ had somehow stepped outside of God's plan by healing this man. And the guy basically says, look, I don't know about all that. I don't know if he's a sinner or not, according to your definition of that word. All I know is this. I was blind and now I can see. And that's the heart of pure evangelism. I once was this way. 
I now am not. And at the middle of that is Jesus Christ, the one who changed everything. But what about for the other party? What about for those hearing? How is their yoga easy and their burden is light? Because that's what we're inviting them into. Not a list of rules and regulations. Now, will there be work along the way? Absolutely. Are we inviting them to abandon everything, to follow after Jesus? So there are going to be things to learn and things to pick up and things to leave from their own light. Yes, but that's the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. To both parties, the invitation is to follow after Jesus. So Paul teaches us right off the bat, guys, sharing the good news is our privilege in Christ. You know, as I've been reading through the book of Ephesians, I've been struck and reminded and encouraged by just the relevance of God's word. Isn't it incredible? Aren't you encouraged by how relevant the Bible is for us today? I mean, it's 2023. And I am reading a letter written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a church thousands of years ago. And it seems as though he's writing it to us today. I mean, the timeline of the things and the timeliness of the things that we learn in Scripture and just how easy it is to relate those things to our world today, right where we are, is just mind-blowing. It's just God at work. You know, in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you remember we read that, that the gospel brings unity, that through the cross, Christ unified us to himself and then unified the Gentiles to the Jews, right? The cross brings unity between us and God and between one another. And unity is so important. I mean, really, if there's anything that can be said about our world right now, it's that we are anything but unified. Countries are at war over a myriad of reasons. The political parties literally hate one another. We still, a couple years later, have those arguing about pro-vaccination and anti-masking and was COVID real and is it not and who created it? And we have the gender and the race wars and confusion. Out in the oceans where I live, we have long borders and short borders and even soft top boogie borders. Okay, so some struggles aren't, aren't quite as serious, but you get the picture. We lack unity in nearly every area of our lives. In every sphere of our world, there is some aspect of disunity. But look at the reminders in this chapter about God's beautiful and perfect design. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. Both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. In just that passage alone, brothers, look at the beautiful unity language. When he's describing these two groups of people that we looked at in our last session, right, the Jews and the Gentiles, they were so different, fundamentally different, and yet they are now one family in Christ. We see unity described here as the same body, right, enjoying the same promises, the same family. The scripture doesn't get into our current racial divide because in the scripture, we basically see two races, Jews and Gentiles, those in God's family, those outside of God's family, or more appropriately, not yet in God's family. 
And in this passage, we're reminded that Christ has removed even that delineation. So now there's the single race, the human race, and those who have been saved have been unified by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Galatians 3.28 reminds us of this. There is no longer now Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. But we have to remember, where did that unity come from? I mean, how did we get it? Unity has already been achieved. And Jesus Christ handled it. Unity has already been created. Our job now is to protect it, to care for it, to preserve it. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. So you know what that means? It doesn't matter what kind of home you were raised in. It doesn't matter if your parents never introduced you to Christ or if you just recently met him. There's not first and second class followers of Jesus. It doesn't matter how foolishly you've seen people elevate men or devalue women or how people have wrongly elevated one race or another. Now we are one in Christ. I mean, look at the unity described in just this passage. One people, unified by one true belief, with equal blessing from God, forming one body, which is the global church, enjoying the one promise and all belonging to Christ, who is the one who saves. Now, if all of that is true, guys, which it is, and I was your enemy, you better believe that unity would be something I would always seek to attack. And I would go after the church itself, quite literally hell-bent on disrupting your unity. There's a reason that Christ's last prayer for us is that we would be one, because he knew that unity was going to be our biggest challenge. And if we keep reading, we get to see more and more of God's original and intended design for his people, for his church, the role that, that we were originally intended to play in this world for our king. Take a look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 for what the original charge was for the church. And I want to pause here, guys, because the church is not some organization or the building that you meet in to attend your events at. It's not a political group. It's not a social club of some kind. You've heard this many times, but the word ecclesia just describes a gathering of people. It doesn't even describe a religious gathering of people, but rather it describes a group of people united by a common purpose. You could use it to describe an ecclesia as a sports team, an ecclesia of military, right? Common purpose, organization, one goal, unity, right? The ecclesia of God is quite literally the family of God united around the purposes of God. It's you and me together. We are the church. So when you read this, I don't want you to think about them who work for the church. I don't want you to think about professional ministers. I want you to think about us, all of us, as God's people. This is Ephesians chapter 3, starting in, in verse 10. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's great plan 
to make himself known to this world. God's plan to display his wisdom, his righteousness, what he is like, his plan to battle the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places with the weapon of truth is to work through you and me. Yikes. <laughs> I mean, God's perfect plan is to use broken people like us, bunch us up together into the most diverse and yet somehow unified family of people to show this world what he is like. He put us together. He called us the church, and then he unleashed us onto this world with a new identity and a new trajectory, with a mission, with a purpose. He sent us into this world to be his followers, his disciples, his apprentices, not just Christians or Republicans or moralists or whatever else you want to fill that in with what we're not intended to be. We're not even intended to just be a group of people who agree with or like or even admire the teachings of Jesus. I'm not sure what other incorrect monikers we could pick up. We are followers of Christ whose purpose is to make him known in this world, period. In our very first week in this series, we talked about identity, real and true identity, about the fact that we've been adopted as God's sons and God's daughters, that, that we've been ransomed, redeemed, that we've been brought from death back to life in Christ, that he set us free from both the penalty of sin and the bondage of sin. We're, we're free. Everything that held us is now gone. We're now loved and forgiven and cherished. And now we're called his disciples. And if we don't embrace, if we don't grab hold of this new identity and then move out in this new trajectory as followers of Christ, according to Ephesians 1.1, then the world's not ever going to meet the true Jesus. And the early church understood this. The early church didn't form committees or clubs or groups. They didn't just study the Bible or sit together and pray. Those are all good and great things, but that wasn't the end of their efforts. That was the beginning of their efforts. Praise and worship and prayer and scripture is where it started, but it certainly didn't stop there for the early church because it was never gaining knowledge about God for knowledge's sake. Whenever the early church was taught something, they decided to put it into practice. They didn't rest in study alone. They received it. They took it in. They let it change them. And then they went out into the world, a world that wanted nothing to do with the upside-down kingdom, with the upside-down teachings of Jesus Christ. And they just started loving people towards the Lord. What do I mean by that? Here's a picture. The church has always been against abortion, rightfully so against the taking of an innocent life made in the image of God Almighty on purpose, right? His creation that he loves. The early church was no different. They were against the taking of children's lives. See, at that time, in Rome, you were not allowed to, to kill a child, but you could abandon a child to its fate. There were places where you could leave a child, and if it was the desire of fate, then the child would either live or die. And it wasn't considered murder. Sound familiar? And it was a far too common practice, especially because in Rome, they wanted sons, they wanted heirs, they wanted help. And, and, and far too often, 
girls or, or, or children who were born with some type of a special need were, were left. And the Christians didn't form committees to try to change this law. They didn't picket in front of these clinics. They didn't bomb them. You know what they did? They went to these places. They gathered up these precious children and they brought them home and they raised them as their own. That's what it looked like. That's what it looked like to move out as a follower of Jesus, making him known in a culture that said that kids were property, that they shouldn't be heard from. Jesus and the early church fought for the value of kids, spoke openly about them and to them, even took time to bless children. Right in the upside down kingdom, in a culture that said that women had no value, they couldn't testify in court. Jesus, we see him publicly meeting with and speaking and talking to and showing his love to women, bringing them into his even inner circles of his team, giving them incredible roles for ministry, shouting their value. The early church didn't just talk about the idea of generosity or about how it's better to give than to receive. They didn't encourage each other to be generous. They sold everything they had and gave the money to strangers and made sure that none of them in their own church had a need. They bought food and gave it away. And why did they do all of that? Why would they do all that? So they'd be respected? So the community leaders would help them because it was the good and right thing to do? To earn their spot on Jesus' team or that, that other people would agree with them and, and then give them respect and authority? No. John chapter 13, verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The love we show proves the faith that we have. The love we demonstrate proves the faith that we possess. Now, the love and the actions don't create the faith. That's not how we earn it. It just reveals what's there. It's like a thermometer. A thermometer doesn't make you sick when it shows 100 degrees. A thermometer doesn't make you healthy when it reads 98.6. A thermometer just reveals what's really going on. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Now, just before this passage, it says that Jesus had given them a new commandment, which really wasn't a new commandment, to love each other. What was new about it is that Jesus clarified and elevated the way that they were supposed to love each other. And he said, you're supposed to love each other just like I have loved you. That's how you're supposed to love each other. And for each of the disciples, for each of the people that were walking with Jesus of Nazareth, this would have been an intensely personal experience. See, each of them, when Jesus said that, would remember exactly how it was that they had been loved by Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, hated by his own people, Deserter, traitor, hated by Rome, cheats, swindlers, unloved by everyone would have heard this call and Matthew would have thought, yes, for the rest of my life, I'm going to go to the least deserving. The, I'm going to go to the one who seems too far gone. My life is going to be about showing Jesus' love to those who could never earn or deserve it to the furthest away. Mary Magdalene had, had a sordid past. 
She was scarred, hurt. She had made mistakes. By culture standpoint, she wasn't even fit to be invited over for dinner. Jesus gave her a new name. Jesus called her daughter, gave her a new place in his community, loved her towards who she intended to be, not who she currently was. And you know what Mary would have thought? That's how I'm going to love people. I'm going to love people who aren't there yet. I'm going to go to people who are stuck in the middle of their sin, and I'm going to bring them the hope of Jesus Christ. Each of the disciples would have remembered exactly how Christ loved them. We get a good reminder from Mary that as God's people, we always love people for who they were intended, designed to be, in spite of who they currently are. We love them towards God's intended design for them. We love people the way that Jesus does, just as they are, but just as Jesus does, far too much to leave them there. He didn't meet Mary and say, I love you, and if this is what you want, you just keep doing you, sister, keep doing it. No, he said, I've got something so much better. And I love it. Mary would have moved out in that same kind of love. Going out to those that society had cast out. Guys, the stories go on and on and on. And not just with the early church. It goes to you and I. We're still included in that story. How has Jesus loved you? Where was he when he found you? What was going on in your life? What's gone on in your life? Think of the grace that he's extended to you. Think of the forgiveness that he's given us. Now give it away. Give it away. What kind of love have you received from the Father? Give that kind of love away. Matthew 10.8 says, Freely you've been given, so freely give. The things that we've experienced from Jesus, not just the physical things. This isn't just saying, so as you've received resources, give those things away. This is saying as you've received love and forgiveness and mercy and patience and community, Give all of that away. You know, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' largest recorded sermon. He said this, right? When he, went into, when he was telling the, the early church, when he was telling his group of people, I'm putting you on display. It's through you guys I'm making my appeal. When he wanted them to know exactly what his intentions were for them, as, as we just read, right? As they go out into the world to make God known, to make his appeal through us, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth salt of the earth. And he didn't mean that like we use it nowadays. You know, we talk about somebody, perhaps blue collar. We, we talk about, he's salt of the earth. She's salt of the earth. It's not what he was saying. What did he mean? Well, in that time, you didn't have refrigeration. If you wanted to keep meat, you had to preserve it. You had to salt it. See, salted meats lasted. So everything that traveled was basically jerky. You're going on a long trip, you got salted meats. Lousy time to be alive, in my opinion. I mean, if you think about this, right? No barbecue pulled pork sandwich. No In-N-Out double-double animal style. No sushi, no fried chicken, no fresh fish. I mean, salted meat is what you had? That's not the point here. Without salt, the food spoiled. It, it went bad. When left to itself, it never got better until you introduced salt. Jesus told his disciples that they were salt. And in that, he was saying, guys, you are going to keep this world from rotting. My power, my love, when it's unleashed through you, it's going to change things. On its own, society is going to rot. 
I want to introduce my truth through you to bring salt, my love, my truth to bear upon this world, preserving it, giving it flavor, not in your own strength, nor by hiding in a room together and just talking about it. You know, I'm constantly amazed by how often I hear followers of Jesus complaining about the decline of our society. Right? When they look out at the world, they read the paper, and they somehow seem surprised that the world is sliding away from Jesus. But the Bible promises this. I mean, down is the natural trajectory, not only of society, but of every single human heart. And if this is how we live, to constantly be surprised by the darkness in the heart of mankind and then feeling overwhelmed and despairing about the state of the world, I think, in our hearts, we're expecting too much of this world and too little of God's church. I think that sort of hard attitude represents that we expect too much from this world and too little from God's church. We expect far too much from the world in terms of holy living, and then we let professed followers of Jesus skate when we don't see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And how backwards is that? Those outside the faith are not on the team yet. It's like holding somebody accountable to your company's code of conduct when they don't work for you yet. Why would we expect to see society following after God's heart, displaying generosity or love or peace or patience or valuing human life? Where do those things come from? from the heart of God, and only in us as God's transformed our hearts to look like His. In the same passage in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus called us to be salt, He also called us to be light. Verses 14 and 15, He says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And there's two really important and timely cultural things to discuss right here. See, at this time, cities were built on hills intentionally so that they could be seen from a great distance. Their torches burnt publicly out in front so that people could see where the city was. And secondly, at this time, nighttime brought serious darkness. You ever camped off the grid? You know what this is like, like inky dark blackness. So lamps weren't cute decorative afterthoughts. Lamps weren't casually placed for aesthetics. Lamps were intentionally, strategically placed in order to provide maximum illumination. And here's the encouragement for us, for God's man. We have to trust that we are right where we're supposed to be. Right where we're supposed to be with the exception of, of pursuing sinful things in our lives. We are where we are, not by accident, but by God's design, by God's plan. Now, you might hear that and think, not for me, Dusty. I'm here because my last relationship blew up and I wanted a fresh start. I'm here because I just got redeployed. My company just transferred me. My spouse wanted to move. I'm here because I didn't get the dream job. I didn't get into the college that I wanted to. And so now I'm just, I'm just here. Or Dusty, I've been trying to get out of here for as long as I can remember. But according to God's word, you have been placed by God to bring illumination. 
But we have to get our eyes off ourselves, brothers. Who are we supposed to be a light for? Look at this passage. It says that that lamp gives light to everyone in the house. The light that we've been given is not just for our benefit. You don't light a lamp for the sake of the lamp. But here's another truth. If God called us to be light, then he's expecting us to go to some dark places. Darkness is, in fact, the only place where light has value. But to put all this in context, all of our light, all of the truth that's in us, all the, all the good deeds that shine out for men have one purpose. They have one reason. It says that at the end of this passage, it says all of that is so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. You and I are called to go out in love and be light and be salt so that people will want to get to know about the God who loves them. That's the purpose, that our, our actual otherworldly behavior would make people curious about this God whose name we profess, that we would shine a light that leads people towards Jesus, not a light that blinds people and forces them to turn around. Loving people towards Jesus is the life effort of every follower. That is our mission, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the bottom line. You and I were called to put Jesus on full display, right? Salt and light. But what I don't want you walking away from this passage is having the wrong view of what our love should be like. Love is a word we throw around very casually. Love, unfortunately, is a world that society has misinterpreted. And if we're supposed to move out in God's love, we have to know what God's love looks like because we cannot confuse it with what the world says love is today because love is never devoid of truth. Just like Jesus, love is always full of grace and truth. Moving out in love doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with the people around us. Moving out in love means I don't celebrate decisions in your life that are either sinful or harmful. Moving out in love means I don't encourage the people I come into contact with to decide what's right and wrong for themselves, to discover their truth when it conflicts with God's truth, even if they think it makes them happy. Moving out in love means that we don't allow people to continue in a life of sin that's destroying their relationship with others and hindering their relationship with God. When we're called to be salt and light, we take our model from Jesus. One of the best examples in scripture is when Jesus met the woman at the well. He offers her true love, real love, godly love. Just by publicly speaking to her, Jesus was offering the kind of love he always showed, an overflowing love based on who he was without regard to who the person was. Kind of a reckless, I don't care about social norms kind of a love for this woman. But in truth, he didn't tell this woman to go home if her life of five husbands was making her happy, if that was consistent with her truth or how she identified. He didn't say, go home and keep doing what you've always been doing. Be true to yourself. He said, leave this life. I've got something so much better. He spoke truth 
into the hardest parts of our life. He spoke truths that stung a little bit. But I love that he didn't remove his love from her when he did that. It was never either or. It was like two sides of a train track, both always fully present, both always fully necessary. But you and I cannot give these things away to other people until we've received them for ourselves. See, Paul knew this. That's why he encouraged the church like this towards the end of this passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he, God, will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Where does this strength come from? How do we access it? Keep reading. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, and your roots will go down deep into God's love and keep you strong. For the man of God, trusting in God's love is the anchor of our lives. That's the deep roots of our faith, trusting in the miraculous love that he gave us. God's love gives us identity and purpose, just like we saw over the last couple of sessions. We now see that God's love provides power and strength and a rootedness that we need to grow and to stand tall for him in this world. And as our knowledge of God's love increases, so will our lives for him. Look at verses 18 and 19 as we close. And may you have power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long, how high and how deep his love is. But beyond just the knowing, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Guys, this is a love beyond understanding, beyond comprehension. It's okay to sit in that tension. It's okay to say, I don't completely understand the love of God, to seek to. But his love is the greatest and truest thing about us. And if we let his love define us, then we'll start to display that love to others. As we take it in freely, so we'll give it away. In his love, we can maintain grace while we speak truth. Guys, we'll see God move powerfully, just like he has for the last 2,000 years, where he took 12 dudes, and they took the good news about Jesus around the entire planet. And now it's on us to make him known. Question is, are you in? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love which defines us, which rescues us, which transforms us, which changes us and makes us new. But God, I pray that we would be men who don't just take in. We wouldn't just be men like the Dead Sea that get poured into, but nothing's alive because it doesn't pour out. Lord, may we be men who take in and then give away. Everything that we receive, every material blessing, May we take in the resources you give us and then give them away. The time you've allotted to us on this earth, may we give it away. Every gift that you've given us, every ability, may we give it all away that people might get to know you and that you would be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen. See you next time.